Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Go ahead and feel free to take a seat. Welcome to First Wednesdays. Uh, my name is Jim Mullins, and it is, it is good to be with you this evening for First Wednesday. If you don't know what First Wednesday is, if it's your first time here, this is our monthly gathering where we reflect on important topics of culture through the lens of the gospel story. We know that there are many things, many big questions going on in our world right now. And we, big things that we need a vision from God on how to respond to those big questions with life. And that's really what First Wednesday is all about. And when we open the Bible, we may not find a specific verse that deals with things like technology and free-range chickens and all kinds of things like that that we talk about from this stage. We do have an incredible lens through which to see the whole world, which is the biblical narrative, represented by the paintings up here of creation, fall, the goodness of creation, the brokenness of sin that enters the world through the fall, redemption, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and restoration, the future day when Jesus comes and restores and makes all things new. And that's the lens through which we look at each topic. In the past, we've done a number of topics. We've done uh, topics like science, art, creativity, power. And tonight, we have a very important topic. The title of our night is Injustice Under Our Feet, Moving Towards Justice and Reconciliation with Our Native American Neighbors. And in a moment, I'll tell you a little bit more about what to expect tonight. But just every first Wednesday, there are a few things that you can expect. One is food. Uh, most First Wednesdays, not all of them, but most First Wednesdays, we have a free meal, and the, the food tonight is provided by Emerson Fry Bread. Do you like it? What do you think? Is it good? Yeah, it's pretty, it's excellent. So Emerson Fry Bread is a, is a food truck. If you see them driving around town, just follow them wherever they go, and you can have some good food. Uh, another thing that you're going to find almost every First Wednesday is that we're going to try to communicate with multiple mediums. So we'll have speakers. Sometimes we'll have art. One of the art displays we have is we have some photography from Katie Parrish, um, some, some uh, photography of her and her time uh, with her children on the reservation, and you can go and see some of that photography there later on tonight. Uh, we also tend to have text-in questions, and tonight we're going to have text-in questions as well. And another thing you can expect from First Wednesdays is that we try to take important topics and kind of push the issue and ask hard questions. You will get that tonight. Tonight is not going to be a lighthearted, jovial night. We're going to ask some hard questions, and it may make you feel a bit uncomfortable, and that's okay. As followers of Christ, as people who are called to take up our, our cross, we can sit here and we can listen to some of the broken things we're about to hear and reflect on them deeply. For tonight, I have two primary things that I want to call you to, two ways to respond tonight, and they may surprise you a little bit. Number one is listen. Listen. James 1.9 says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We are called to listen. And if something makes you uncomfortable tonight, there is a tendency to want to ease your soul by disregarding the speaker. Don't do that. And out of faithfulness to Christ, listen, take in, 
and let the, the wounds of the world enter your heart. The second thing is lament. Lament is a biblical practice that we've, we've often forgotten in our day. It's, it's the act of crying out to God in prayer about the injustices and brokenness of the world. And so oftentimes, since we forget to lament, we don't know what to do with the heavy feelings that we feel, and we try to move straight into action. Well, with First Wednesdays, with all First Wednesdays, especially this one, I try to make it a little less practical than you would want so that the topic stays with you, so that there's not easy answers that you can walk away with, and tonight is going to be just that. Let me read this quote about lament as we enter into our night. It says, The first language of the church in a deeply broken world is not strategy but prayer. The journey of reconciliation is grounded in a call to see and encounter the rupture of this world so truthfully that we are literally slowed down. We are called to a space where any explanation or action is too easy, too fast, too shallow, a place where the right response can only be a desperate cry directed to God. We are called to learn the anguished cry of lament. And if you walk away with a heavy heart tonight, Bring that to God. That is what lament is about. And I really want to encourage that. Why this topic of justice and reconciliation with our Native American neighbors? Why the phrase injustice under our feet? We chose that because we know that there are many, this church, I want to commend you. You tend to care about issues of justice in this world. You want things to be right. You deeply care. And we often care about things far away. We can speak in articulate ways about ISIS and all kinds of things going on in the world. But what about the stuff happening in our state? There have been a lot of issues of injustice in our state that are kind of like, you've heard the term, the elephant in the room. This is the elephant in the state that we don't know. We often know that something wrong happened, but we just don't know what it is. Well, tonight we want to take that head on and listen, and reflect, and think about what has happened, not in issues of injustice far away, but in the ground that we literally walk on. If the ground could speak, what would it say about what's happened in our very state, and in our very country, and those sorts of things? So that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us now, and I'm going to give you a discussion question, and then just a moment, we'll introduce our speaker, Mark Charles. Father, we just, we just ask that you would prepare our hearts tonight, that you would prepare our hearts to look to you, to feel the weight of brokenness and injustice, to know that we are not innocent bystanders, but that we are complicit in a world of injustice and brokenness. And God, help us to see with clear eyes. We pray that you would speak to us individually, and we thank you, Jesus, that we have a Savior who stepped into the world of pain and brokenness, physically took it on his body. We thank you that it, you physically absorbed our pain and that you also were unjustly tried. You are the good Savior. You stepped into the injustice of the world to bring about justice and to justify us and help us know our identity as your children tonight. And with that identity, let us have ears that hear. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So turn to your neighbor and just basically discuss what are the questions that you want answered tonight. Go ahead and discuss that around your tables, and we'll come up with our speaker in just a moment. Good evening, guys. I hope you came up with some really good questions. And we'll have time after Mark's speech to be able to answer a lot of those questions you've had. So remember those, write them down, and get them ready. Um, I'm really excited for this evening's topic. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Katie Parrish, and I'm a member here at Redemption Tempe, and I've actually been on staff part-time for the last couple of years. And personally, this topic is really of great interest to me because about five years ago, I married my husband, Ben. And Ben happens to be a full-blooded Diné man, and that is the word that the Navajo people call themselves. Um, so this past five years has been an amazing journey for us, uh, one of uh, amazing cultural awareness, both my culture and his culture, and we've been uh, walking through a lot together in understanding culture, the role it plays in our lives, how we see it, where we see it, how we raise our kids, and then also as believers in Christ, what does this mean for us? And as we continue to explore culture and we see just injustices and honorable things and what to do with it, we've really been trying to look at it from a framework of um, what would Jesus do and how do we as followers of Christ uh, go into these discussions. Uh, so a while back, we were actually uh, given a, an article written by Mark Charles. It was titled, When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a Shepherd, and it really resonated with us. And as we started to follow him, we realized how very well versed he was in um, many different native issues, and he is uh, just a, a perfect person for us to bring in. So when we started to think about tonight and discussing local issues and perhaps Native American topics, uh, we knew that he was the guy that we really wanted to bring in to speak with us. So if you're not familiar with Mark, he is, a, um, he is also a Diné man. He lives up on the Navajo Nation in northern Arizona. Um, he formerly was a pastor in Denver, Colorado. He is now the founder and director of an organization called Five Small Loaves, which is really focused on racial reconciliation and a lot of the topics that we'll discuss here tonight. He also has roles uh, with the Christian Reformed Church and as well as some other organizations such as the Calvin Theological Seminary. And for those of you who are uh, students in the room, he actually has a role with InterVarsity and um, Crew and with their Native American conference that they put on each year, which is titled, Would Jesus Eat Fry Bread? Which hopefully we all would agree that he probably would, because it's really yummy. <laughs> but if you would all join me, uh, let's go ahead and welcome Mark to the stage. Thank you, Katie. Yat A. Mark Charles Yinashia, Sin Bake Dinan, the Slim, the Tohiglini Vashachin, Sin Bake Dinan Vashache, Do Tohichini Vashanella. Besides this table over here, did anyone else understand what I had to say here? So the Navajo culture is a matrilineal culture. Um, our identities come from our mothers. And my mother is actually American of Dutch heritage. And so when I introduce myself, every Navajo you have four clans. And so your identity comes from your mother's mother. So my mother's mother was um, the great-grandchild of some immigrants from the Netherlands. And the normal word for Americans is Bilagana, but uh, in the Navajo is a descriptive language, and so we actually describe things rather than label them. 
So I sat down with some of my elders and relatives, and we decided to call my mother's clan Sin Bake Dene'a. So Sin is wood or sticks, Bake is shoes, and Dene'a is people. So I tell people I'm of the wooden shoe clan on my mother's side. My father's side, um, my father's mother is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My mother's father is also Sin Bake Dene'a. And my father's father is Todichitni, uh, the Bitterwater clan, one of the original clans of the Navajo people. Um, we have a ton of material to discuss tonight, and uh, I could easily fill up about a three-day conference with what we're going to discuss in the next 25 minutes. So I want to start, though, just by kind of warning you. I'm probably going to offend everybody in the room <laughs> at some point tonight. And um, I really want to encourage you to take what uh, uh, was said earlier, which is we really need to hear this message with an a, a attitude of lament. And I'm not saying these things to anger anyone. I'm not saying these things to be inflammatory. I merely want you to understand the history of your nation, of your state, and of your church. Um, the broader church throughout the country. And so I, I uh, ask you to enter into this time almost like it's a sacred moment and to reflectively think about the things I'm presenting and allow yourself to just sit in it for a while and we'll have some dialogue afterwards, but this, this type of dialogue actually takes several days, months, or even years to really progress because it's so uh, life-changing or, or it's just a different paradigm. Is this working? There we go. The doctrine of discovery. I'd like to read this for you. Invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever and other enemies of Christ wheresoever placed. And the kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them, and reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, and to apply and appropriate to himself and his successors the kingdoms, dukedoms, counties, principalities, dominions, possessions, and goods, and to convert them to his and their use and profit. This is not a propaganda letter from ISIS I pulled off of the web yesterday. This is a papal bull written in 1452 by Pope Nicholas V. The Doctrine of Discovery is a series of papal bulls written in the 1450s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s that essentially was the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, Whatever lands you find that are not ruled by Christian rulers, those people are less than human, and the land is yours for the taking. You may enslave them, you may kill them, you may do whatever you want to them, because they are less than human. It's the doctrine of discovery that allowed European nations to go into Africa, colonize the continent, and enslave the African people. It was the doctrine of discovery that allowed Christopher Columbus to get lost at sea, land on a continent inhabited by millions, and claim to have discovered it. Because his doctrine told him this land was empty. Okay. 
One of the things that we talk about as a nation over and over, and all of you probably know this quote up here, we use this, this document, the Declaration of Independence, to justify our nation. This document we have used time and time again to point to and say at its core, the United States of America is a good country. All of us know this quote. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they, ha- and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This document was one of the moral um, uh, justifications behind the civil rights movement. Dr. King pointed back to this document and said, listen, you say this as a nation, you need to live up to it. We use this document constantly to talk about the fact that our nation is good. But we almost never talk about other aspects of this document um, in the uh, Declaration of Independence. This line here, listed later in the Declaration, he the king of England, has endeavored to prevent the populations of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing them to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. Now, if you're not that historically informed, this justification doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But when you study Uh, the history of that era, you will find that this declaration was written in 1776. In 1763, King George made the proclamation of 1763. And in that proclamation, he drew a line down the Appalachian Mountains. And he said to the colonies, all of the lands, the native lands, the Indian lands west of the Appalachian Mountains, you no longer have the right of discovery over these lands. That right is now reserved only for the crown. So one of the justifications the colonies gave in declaring their independence was that the crown was raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. They were very upset that they had lost the right of discovery of the lands west of the Appalachian Mountains. Because even though those lands had Indians on them, Native Americans on them, they still considered them to be empty. We also rarely read this line. He has executed domestic insurre- he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguishable destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Our own Declaration of Independence literally dehumanizes Native Americans. Merciless Indian savages. So it's very clear that when the colonies and our founders wrote the words, we declare these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Myself, the members of this table, other Native Americans in the room, were not included in the term all men. That didn't apply to us. 
It becomes even more clear when you look at the Constitution written about 12 years later, because now that the colonies had won their freedom and they had to define who was included in this grand experiment, now they had to actually define who all men referred to. And in the Constitution, if you read through it, you will see that all men does not refer to women, all men does not refer to African slaves, and all men does not refer to Native Americans. This document that we constantly point to to say our nation at its core is good is actually a very systemically racist document that dehumanizes entire races of people. The Doctrine of Discovery has actually been encoded into U.S. Supreme Court case law. In 1823, there was a a case brought before the Supreme Court, Johnson versus McIntosh. Two European men of European descent arguing over a piece of land. One man had bought it from a native tribe. The other man had received it from, uh, I think, the governor of a state. And they were going to court fighting over who had the rights, the title to this land. In their review of the case, the Supreme Court stated that Native Americans had the right of occupancy of the land, much like a bird occupies air or a fish occupies water, and Europeans had the right of discovery of the land. And discovery trumps occupancy. This case has become the legal precedent for all land title claims throughout the United States. This case, based on stating using the doctrine of discovery, is what gives our government the legal right to say we own this land. Based on a Christian doctrine that I read to you earlier that came out of the Catholic Church in the 1490s. In 1830, we had the Indian Removal Act. This was the right of the government to basically remove Okay. This was the right of the government to remove native peoples from their lands to empty lands further west. It was the Indian Removal Act that allowed in, seven, in 1838 the removal of 17,000 Cherokee people from their homes as they were marched to Oklahoma. This is known as the Trail of Tears. 4,000 died along the way. About as many died as a result of the forced march, and half of the survivors died within the first year of relocation. It was the Indian Removal Act that allowed, in in 1860, the creation of Fort Defiance, which is where I live, that was later given the charge of General Kit Carson, and he went throughout all of the native, the Navajo lands up in north, uh, the Four Corners area, destroying crops, killing herds, destroying homes. And then they called all the Navajos to report to certain camps and forts around uh, the area. And we were forcibly marched down to Fort Sumner in New Mexico. 8,000 men, women, and children Uh, were sent on this walk. There were many other nations, including the Chickasaw, the Shawnee, the Lenape, the Osage, the Chickapoo, 
um, the Choctaw, the Seminole, the Creek, and other tribes that were forced, forcibly relocated because of this act, the Indian Removal Act. In 1862, there was a battle with the Lakota Indians, and uh, several hundred men were brought into, were captured and brought in as prisoners. And this was the order that was given. Ordered that the Indians and half-breeds sentenced to be hanged by the military commission composed of Colonel Crooks, Lieutenant Colonel Marshall, Captain Grant, Captain Bailey, and Lieutenant Olin, and lately sitting in Minnesota, you caused to be executed on Friday, the 19th day of December, instant the following names to wit. 39 names listed by case number of record. Cases 2, 4, 5, 6, 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, 19, 22, 24, 35, 67, 68, 69, 70, 96, 115, 121, 138, 155, 170, 175, 178, 210, 225, 254, 264, 279, 318, 327, 333, 342, 359, 373, 377, 382, and 383. They're known as the Dakota 38, the largest mass execution ever executed at one time by the United States government. Ordered by Abraham Lincoln. In 1879, we had the institution of boarding schools. The Carlisle Indian School was set up in a military educational training base in Pennsylvania. The stated goal of this boarding school, as quoted by Captain Richard Henry Pratt, wherein he said, a great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian that there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. Many churches, denominations, worked hand in hand with the government establishing boarding schools that were set up all around the United States of America, including in Arizona and New Mexico. In 1887, we had the Dawes Allotment Act. What the Dawes Allotment Act it did is it took the lands that Indians had been removed to, which already reduced our lands significantly throughout the nation, and it said the government wanted more lands and they wanted a way to forcibly assimilate more native peoples. So they took every native male and they allotted him 160 acres of land. What this meant was by 1934, the land the United States government allowed native peoples to occupy was reduced by two-thirds, which is approximately 156,000 square miles a land mass roughly the size of California. Of the land that remained unsettled, about one-third of it, or 25,000 square miles, was unfit for most profitable use, being desert or semi-desert land. So even the reservations we had been removed to through the Indian Removal Act was now reduced by two-thirds, about the size of the state of California. In 1890, we had the massacre at Wounded Knee. Lakota Chief Bigfoot and 350 followers were massacred at Wounded Knee. In a single day, these people were killed. Twenty Congressional Medals of Honor 
were awarded to the US, U.S. soldiers who participated in this massacre. A ranking member of the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, because there has been many attempts to have these Congressional Medals of Honor rescinded um, because this claim that this was not an act of war but a war crime. And a ranking member of the U.S. Senate's Armed Services Committee has acknowledged the great wrong of Wounded Knee but defended the medals in a letter addressing a 1996 campaign for their rescindment. The policies and decisions of the United States government that led to the Army being at Wounded Knee in 1890 doubtless can be characterized as unjust, unwise, or worse. Nevertheless, a retrospective judgment that the government's policies and actions were dishonorable does not warrant rescinding the medals awarded to individual soldiers for bravery in a brief, fierce fight in which 25 soldiers were killed and 45 others wounded. Neither today's standards for awarding the medal nor policies of the United States with regard to Indian tribes are what they were in 1890. Senator John McCain. In 1824, we had the Indian Citizenship Act. This declared all non-citizen Indians born within the U.S. to be citizens, giving us the right to vote. However, voting was, um, is a state's right. So many states, including Arizona and New Mexico, effectively barred natives from voting until 1948. This is a very pivotal date to understand, because in 1944, over 20 Navajos were recruited by the Marine Corps and they created the Navajo Code. These were the code talkers. This was in 1944. These men didn't even have the right to vote as citizens in the state of Arizona or New Mexico, even though they were saving our country from defeat in a horrible war. In 2005, the city of Sherrill went to court against the Oneida Indian Nation of New York. The Oneida Indian Nation was buying back some of their traditional lands they had been removed from in the 1830s after the Remo Indian Removal Act. Land that natives have is not our land. It's held in trust by, for us by the federal government. You've heard the term Indian sovereignty. I tell people that natives are sovereign over their land like your teenager is sovereign over their room. Um, it's held in trust by the federal government for us. And so the Oneida Nation was buying land back and they wanted to have this included in their reserved lands. Um, reserved lands are not taxable. So the city of Sherrill was suing them because they were saying, no, you can't be tax exempt on this land, you have to pay taxes on it. The Supreme Court reviewed the case and stated Again, going back to the 1823 precedent, using the doctrine of discovery, that because they had not occupied this land in so long, the title of the land went back to the government, and they were now taxable for this land. So in 2005, we have the doctrine of discovery being referenced as a case precedent. Did I miss? Oh. The 
December 7, 2009, we had the settlement of the Cobell versus Salazar class action lawsuit. This was a lawsuit brought by a native woman for, I believe, over 10 billion, maybe over 20 billion dollars originally. It was suing the government because the U.S. government, in its holding trust over the lands and resources for native peoples, did not have a good accounting of the resources that were being sold and used from these lands. So this is nothing about the lands that were stolen, nothing about the treaties that were broken. This was simply about the, the management of the monies coming from these lands after they were reduced through all these policies I just read to you. The settlement, this um, settlement was made in uh, December 7, 2009 for $3.4 billion. Um, uh, just a fraction of what this settlement, what the lawsuit was actually brought against the U.S. government for. December 19, 2009, House Resolution 3326 was signed by President Obama. This is the 2010 Department of Defense Appropriations Act. If you can go to that, to that uh, PDF. This is the 2010 Department of Defense Appropriations Bill, a 67-page document laying out the appropriations for the, the Department of Defense. On page 45 of the 67-page document, in subsection 8113, is the title, Apology to Native Peoples of the United States. In that section, we have a seven-bullet-point apology it mentions no specific treaty, no specific tribe, and no specific injustice. It basically says, you have some nice land, we didn't take it very respectfully, can't we all just get along? And it ends with a disclaimer saying nothing in this is legally binding. This was signed in a closed-door ceremony by President Obama 12 days after the Cobell lawsuit was settled. It was never announced, it was never read, it was never publicized by the White House or by Congress. I found out about it two, days to the, two years to the day later by accident, and I hosted a public reading of this apology in front of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. on the third anniversary of the signing of the bill. We had it translated into Navajo and Ojibwe. We read it in English, Navajo and Ojibwe. I spoke personally with Governor Brownback, who as a senator from Kansas was the one who initiated this bill. I communicated with the White House. I spoke with denominational leaders, evangelical leaders, uh, Christian academic leaders, all throughout the nation, asking people to come and join the reading of this bill and take ownership of this apology. We had about 150 people show up that day. Almost every single one of them were from the grassroots level. By and large, no leaders from any sector wanted to be there. At the end of the reading, I stood up and I said to our native peoples, I said, not out of anger, not out of bitterness, but out of respect, we cannot accept this apology. It was not given respectfully. We deserve better and our nation can do better. The thing that really disturbed me about finding this apology and the way it was buried was that when Columbus got lost at sea, in 1492, and land on a continent inhabited by millions, his doctrine, his worldview, told him that this land was empty. 
500 years later, when our Congress and our president was attempting, pathetically, but still attempting, to apologize for these injustices, they did it in a way that still communicated this land is empty. There's no one here left to apologize to. We can bury it in this bill and wash our hands of it and never have to speak of it publicly. How much more time do I have left? Okay. One of, the, uh, one of the things that I talk about frequently is I talk about a Native American perspective on immigration reform. Um, again, I could go into several hours on this, but I won't right now. But I, I offer some commentary on why it's important that Native Americans be engaged in the dialogue to reform our nation's immigration laws. And last year, I was down here in Phoenix. Actually, last January, I was in Phoenix, um, and I was attending a conference hosted by University at one of the um, CCD ministries, uh, the Community Development Ministry here in Phoenix, that was playing a pretty pivotal role in moving the immigration debate reform after uh, the Gang of Eight had introduced their bill about a year and a half ago, and then it kind of stalled in Congress over the summer, there was a ministry here in town that sent some people to Washington, D.C. They were praying and having a vigil outside of Speaker Boehner's office, and they really did a lot to move the dialogue forward on immigration reform on Capitol Hill that year. And so there was a group of students who were studying and spending a day at this ministry learning about issues of urban poverty here in Phoenix, and they were l spending a whole day learning about immigration reform. And I was asked to come in at the end of this day and offer a perspective, a native perspective on immigration reform. There's a group out there called the Evangelical Immigration Table. Uh, they are a group that are really working hard for the past four or five years to engage evangelical Christians in the whole debate on immigration reform. When the Gang of Eight came out with their proposed bill, the Evangelical Immigration Table, to help lobby people and excite the, their base to, to work to get this bill passed, they came out with a bookmark and a pamphlet that had 40 verses on it that were, uh, they said were they were using to help people understand God's heart for the alien. And so at this conference I was at, we read through those 40 verses. I knew those 40 verses, they had been... Um, they had been Selected. I knew they had this pamphlet out. I had never read them. And so we read through them that day. And um, we got down to Jeremiah 7, verses 5, 6, and 7. There were 26 verses from the Old Testament, um, 14 from the New Testament. And uh, we read down to Jeremiah 7, verses 5, 6, and 7. Jeremiah 7, 5, and 6 say... Do not mistreat the orphan, do not mistreat the widow, do not mistreat the alien, and do not worship false gods to your own detriment. All great commands from Yahweh. Verse 7 says, If you obey these commands, then I will bless you in the land I've given you, the land I promised to your fathers and your forefathers. I read this verse and I looked around the room and no one was really reacting to that verse. But I noted it in my mind. And that evening when I got up to present my, my uh, presentation, I looked out over the students and I said to them, as well as to the ministry leaders, I said, I don't know how else to tell you this 
except to just be straight up honest. I said, you've been lied to. Your teachers have lied to you. Your professors have lied to you. Your pastors have lied to you. Your politicians have lied to you. Your history books have lied to you. You've been lied to your entire life. You are not God's chosen people. And this is not your promised land. Why does that sound so weird? None of us ever say that. We sing it. My country, tis of thee. Who's thee? It's God, right? We have this belief that this land was given to us by God. I said to them, the United States of America is not rich and powerful because of God's blessing. The United States of America is rich and powerful because we are systemically racist and inherently unjust. Why does that make us want to clench our fists? To understand that, we have to go back to Constantine. Constantine became emperor of Rome. Before his rule, you had the church and you had empire. Empire persecuted the church. Constantine became a Christian and Christianized Rome. Now, if you are a Roman citizen, you were a Christian. And he was the leader of the church. You had the marriage of church and empire. Empire became church. In the, 1430, in the, in the 1300s, you have the church beginning to fight against the Muslims, the Moors. And when you have a Christian empire fighting another entity, you need to have justification for doing it. You can't just kill them. So we begin to see in the papal bulls the first precedent of the papal bulls beginning to dehumanize the other, beginning to dehumanize the Moors. This became the foundation for the doctrine of discovery in the 1400s. When you have Christian empire, you have a belief there's Christian empire, there's only one narrative in the Bible that you can look to, and that's Old Testament Israel. When Israel went into Canaan, what did God say to Israel? What was their command? Commit genocide. Clear your promised land. In the 1630s, we have John Winthrop. He preaches a sermon to the Boston colonies. He calls the colonies a city on a hill, a beacon of light set up for the world to see. In the 1800s, there's a widely held belief that this settler nation had a manifest destiny to rule this land from sea to shining sea. The Protestant church was grabbing on to this notion of the doctrine of discovery and it was using it to justify its expansion throughout this land. I just went through all the facts of how we did it. And so as a nation we have the marriage of church and empire. Church and empire become the same. And when you have a doctrine of discovery 
when you dehumanize the other, when you see yourself as a city on a hill, when you understand that you have a manifest destiny to rule the sea from sea to shine, this land from sea to shining sea, what do you do with your pagans in the promised land? This is a book by native academics. It's a great book that lays out the doctrine of discovery. It's called Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. He's not a Christian, but he's, his book is titled Pagans in the Promised Land. If you take the history of the United States of America and you lay it over the narrative you find in Joshua, the similarities are going to be eerie. We truly do have this belief that this is this United States of America's promised land. We have a belief that we are rich and powerful because of God's blessing. And we never teach about the systemic racism that's in our founding documents that's been encoded into our Supreme Court course, uh, case law, that's been prevalent in our policies throughout our entire history of our nation. So what do we do with this? Where do we go? How do we, how do we begin to grapple with this as a church? The first thing we have to do as a church is we have to begin to separate ourselves from the notion that we live in a Christian empire. Read the New Testament cover to cover. You will not find Christian empire in there. There is no such thing as Christian empire. You have empire and you have church. They're not the same. And so... One of the reasons why, I'm don't, why I think I couldn't get our nation to engage with this apology is because it would have caused us to wrestle with our history. And our nation doesn't know how to wrestle with our history. We have a notion of American exceptionalism. We're a great country. We're not a racist country. We don't know what to do when we find a deep foundational level flaw in our thinking. I mentioned earlier the civil rights movement. One of the, 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 the moral justifications for the civil rights movement was the Declaration of Independence. Our civil rights leaders said, they called us back to the Declaration of Independence. At a very basic level, a large part of the civil rights movement was our African-American brothers and sisters saying to the nation, just be better Americans. Live up to your core inner goodness. The doctrine of discovery, even though it was the same doctrine that allowed African-Americans to be enslaved and genocide against natives, was not brought into the civil rights movement or the freeing of the slaves. I don't fully know why yet. I'm actually starting some research to look at that question. But I do know that our nation does not want to deal with the fact that at our core, we are systemically racist. It doesn't, we don't know what to do with that as a nation. And so the only hope we have of beginning to get healing and reconciliation is if the church is somehow able to separate itself from the notion of Christian empire. 
if the church can find its identity solely and exclusively in the blood of Christ. I am a Christian. I'm not a Christian of, I'm not a citizen of a Christian nation. I am a Christian. I follow Christ. He alone redeems me and justifies me. The Declaration of Independence weighs carries no bearing on my identity as a person. If the church can begin to separate itself from that, then we can be a strong root that the citizens of our nation can begin to grab onto when that rug gets pulled out from underneath them. But we have to separate ourselves. Earlier, we talked about the whole process of lament. Even lament is challenging for us as a church today. Why is that? Because in lament, we see the most examples of lament in the Old Testament, which is Israel lamenting the sins of its nation. So what was their hope? The hope of Israel in their lament throughout the Old Testament was their covenant with God. If you confess your sins, if you humble yourself, if you cry out to me, I will hear your cries and I will heal your land. That is God's covenant with Israel. How do you lament the sins of a nation that does not have a covenant with God? There is no promise in Scripture that says if all of us in the room, if every Christian in the U.S., lamented and cried out to God and confessed the sins of our nation, there is no promise that we can point to that says God will restore the fortunes of the United States of America. We do not have a covenant with God. So then what's our hope? Our hope is in the bargain that Abraham worked out with God over Sodom and Gomorrah. Our hope is in the story of Rahab, a prostitute being saved out of Jericho before it was destroyed. Our hope is the story in Jonah of God, of his own will, saying to Jonah, I want to have mercy on Nineveh. Go there and preach the word. Our hope is not found in any single promise of God. Our hope instead is found in the character of God. Who is God? What is he like? We can't hold him to one specific promise, but we can do just like what C.S. Lewis described in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the children have come into Narnia and they're at the beaver's house and they're trying to figure out who this guy Aslan is. And it's slowly dawning on him that he might not be a man. And Susan says to the beaver, she said, "Uh, uh, is Aslan a man? And Mrs. Beaver laughs and says, no, honey, of course he's not a man. He's a lion. And Susan said, oh my gosh, I should be quite nervous to meet a lion. And Mrs. Beaver said, yeah, you should be. He's a lion. But he's good. There's no guarantee he's not going to destroy you. But he's good. And you're going to have hope in that. And as a church... As citizens of the United States, our hope is not found in the fact, in the lie that says we have a covenant with God as a nation. Our hope is found in the character of God and in the mercy that we've known him to show to people when they humble himself, humble themselves. 
And so that is what I want to call us together today as a church to do. Is to become a church that is able to separate itself from the notion of Christian empire. Not that we need to start trashing our country, but just understand it doesn't define who we are as Christians. Our salvation, our justification does not come from the Declaration of Independence. That is a systemically racist document. Our justification comes solely and exclusively in the blood of Jesus Christ and in the reconciled relationship he gives us with our Creator, our Father in Heaven. Let me close this in prayer. Our Father, we come before you because these are very difficult things to talk about and to wrestle with and to grapple with. I pray that you will pour out your Spirit on each of us. I pray that you will Bless our dialogue now as we have some Q&A and try to process through some of these things. But I also ask that you will lead us in the next weeks, months, and even years as we begin to understand what does it mean to find our identity solely and exclusively in the blood of Christ. Father, we ask that you will strengthen your church. We ask that you will separate it from the notion of Christian empire. And I ask, Father, that you will have mercy on the United States of America. Amen. Amen. So we're going to continue to have a discussion about these things. Um, If you want to send in a question, the instructions are right up there. But while we get set up uh, for the panel here, take a few moments to discuss around your table what's, what's one thing that is sticking with you, that's weighing heavy on your heart, that you are going to take home and really reflect on. So share that around your table, and in just a few moments, we'll come back and answer some questions. So go ahead now. Okay, let's go ahead and bring our discussions to a close. Um, Katie, would you start off? I want to ask you a a question a bit about your story, but before we get to your story, we need something even just as valuable, your eyes. Since I can't actually read the screen because I have bad vision, would you go ahead and tell them uh, what it says? I'm still never sure if I'm up here because I'm the woman or I have good vision, but they've brought me up here and they keep using me for this reason. Both. Both. (laughs) Okay, so if you guys haven't got this down yet, you need to text all of life to the 411 number, and that's going to send you a confirmation. So you reply yes to confirm, and then you send your question, which you need to write all of life again, and then your question. So text all of life to the 411 number, confirm with a Y, and re- send your question all of life following your question. All right. Well, the first question I want to ask uh, is actually for Katie. Uh, If you don't know, Katie and her husband, Ben, who's over there, um, have been instrumental in making this night happen. So uh, they are the ones that have talked to me about it and have really put this on my radar, and I I really am grateful to them for that. Would you give them a hand, please? Um, So I wanted to first, I wanted to just ask Katie a little bit about her journey and how it got us up to this point. Go ahead. 
Well, I shared a little bit, but um, being married to Ben was a really eye-opening experience for, for both of us, really, as we started to ask each other questions. I'm convinced that having a biracial marriage is one of God's greatest blessings because it's given me a, an intimate partner with a different lens on the world that I can work through things with, and it's really been, um, really been wonderful. So uh, I think uh, if I had to say maybe a couple of the, the biggest things I've learned, it would be... Um, the true history uh, of, of the Native American experience, which I wasn't familiar with, much of what Mark has said here tonight, and um, how Christians fit into all of that, and then also how that compares to my story as an Anglo-American, and the, something that always stands out to me is the date of the Long Walk, which was 1864. Remember, that's when the Navajo were forced off of their land by gunpoint point by the U.S. Army and forced to walk to New Mexico, <coughs> coming back to their land uh, ravaged, orchards scorched, and um, a completely different way of life. Um, a, f a while back, I was on the phone with my grandmother, and she was telling me about the history of our ranch in Wyoming. We have a large, successful Angus cattle ranch that my grandfather was instrumental in making a, a huge success, and um, he's a hardworking man. Um, but to go back, she had just told me randomly one time that the water rights for that land were given in 1864. Um, 1864. So the same year that Ben's family was being walked off of their land by gunpoint, uh, the predecessors to our family ranch were actually getting signed water rights just for being who they were and discovering that land. So this has really hit home for us as we've learned how to walk through this as a family and as believers. Well, I had a, a few questions for Mark and for Katie, but I think we're just going to forego my questions and go straight to the text in question. So, Katie, use your eyes to tell us what those questions say. Yes. What tribes live in Arizona today? Where do they live and how many people are there? Can you hear me now? That wasn't an advertisement. Um, um, I don't know exactly how many tribes are here in the United States, are here in Arizona. Uh, the Navajo, by far, we have the largest reservation. Our reservation is in the Four Corners area, so we have land in southeast Utah, northeast Arizona, and northwest New Mexico. Our reservation is 26,000 square miles, um, which is larger than nine other states. So if we were a state, we'd be about the 40th largest. And we have about 180,000 uh, tribal members on the reservation and another 120,000 off the reservation. Primarily, they live in cities like Albuquerque and Phoenix and Denver uh, and Los Angeles. Um, there's also the Hopi tribe. Uh, they are in the middle of the Navajo Reservation, uh, north of the Grand Canyon. And they have uh, what is believed to be the oldest, most continuously inhabited village in the United, in the continental United States. Uh, Old Oriabi was first inhabited in 1100 AD. Um, that's 300 years before Columbus got lost. And so uh, I often tell people, you know, if we really want to have a dialogue on immigration reform, let's go start up in Old Oriabi and ask the elders there what kind of stories they have about the protocols of how to come onto a land. Um, there's also the Apache. I know there's several other tribes down south, closer to the border. 
Um, I don't have a number on all of them throughout the Arizona. I, I know m more about the ones up in the northern part. I'm not as familiar with the ones Phoenix and southern of here. How, this is a good one. How should Christians think about the NFL team, the Washington Redskins? You knew you were going to get that, right? Yes. Um, so I debated even in my presentation today when I read uh, the Declaration of Independence line about the merciless Indian savages of replacing that with the merciless Washington Redskins. <laughs> um, because I think the sentiment is the same which is, it's a dehumanizing term. And anytime you have a term that dehumanizes, um, even more so than like uh, the Florida State Seminoles or the Kansas City Chiefs, those are making mascots out of people, which isn't as dehumanizing as just referring to someone as the Washington Redskins. Um, and so I, I definitely feel like it is, it is a name that needs to be changed. Um, I'm... I'm a little, I think that the harder thing about it is I'm, I'm grateful that at least in certain circles around the country that issue has caught on and people are dialoguing about it. Um, I'm disappointed that more people know about the Washington Redskins name change than about the apology that was given on your behalf. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of really deep issues that we're not talking about. Um, you know, on one hand, it's, it's easy to kind of be a, a point-and-click activist uh, for something like the Washington Redskins. One of the things that I, I frequently talk about when I, I talk about the Doctrine of Discovery, and I serve on a task force for the Christian Reformed Church, um, and we're looking at the doctrine of discovery and trying to understand it. And a lot of our members come to me frequently and say, we just need to renounce this thing. We need to rescind it, repudiate it. Um, and I tell them, that's easy. You know, I could write an article tomorrow that would convince everybody in our denomination that the doctrine of discovery is a bad thing and we shouldn't have it on the books. The problem is no one wants to change anything. No one wants to, it to affect the things that they do daily. And I think the Washington Redskins name change is very similar. It's easier to point to, you know, a multimillionaire and say he needs to change that. But we're not going to do anything about the fact that the title to my house is justified by the doctrine of discovery. You know, um, that's a much harder dialogue to have. And so I, I fully support, I, I completely agree the name needs to be changed. But I'm also looking for ways to really engage in much deeper dialogue. Um, and I keep waiting for a moment of inspiration when I could write a blog article that would just bring uh, the owner of the Redskins to his knees and have him change it in a moment. But that inspiration hasn't come yet either. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's, it's an important issue. It's one that needs to be addressed, but it's merely, I don't even want to call it the tip of an iceberg. It's like an ice cube on top of the tip of an iceberg. Um, and so there, there's a lot of really deeper issues that we need to address as a nation about what we need to change in our daily lives and practices as well. Yeah, that's really good. 
What are your thoughts on short-term mission trips to Native American reservations? Um, my organization, my wife, uh, she's not my organization. My wife <laughs> is a part of our organization. Uh, she's, she's Biligana, so she's uh, primarily from the Beishpachai, which is uh, the metal hat people, which was the term for the Germans during World War II with the code talkers. Um, the code's been declassified. If you want to go online, you can look it up and find the names for your country as well, where your ancestors came from. But um, my wife has actually written a series of articles on short-term missions uh, and ways that those can be done better and more effectively. Some of the advice that I give to most people is I tell them when we moved to our reservation um, 10 years ago and we lived for three years in a sheep camp out six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road, no running water, no electricity. We lived with a family that herded sheep and wove rugs for a living. Um, I went there prepared for living that remote lifestyle. I was completely unprepared for how marginalized I felt. And one of the first things I noticed is that primarily there were only two sets of non-natives who ever visit the reservation which are those who come to give us charity and those who come to take our picture. And very often they're the same people. And I, I challenge a lot of mission teams that if they really want to come and, and make a difference on our reservation or any reservation, they need to come in a much more relational manner. They need to come with smaller teams. They need to show some need. Um, they need to allow themselves to be served by our people and they need to come with a focus on building relationships. So if you go to our website, Five Small Loaves, it's the number five, smallloaves.org, you'll see a great series of articles that my wife wrote regarding short-term missions. Um, the other thing I would say about short-term missions, and this goes back really to the doctrine of discovery, which is when you have a doctrine that is at the foundation of your nation and it's at the foundation of your church, and at its base, it dehumanizes the other. So at the most obscene level, that leads to genocide. On the other side, it leads to a motivation in missions where you're going somewhere merely to humanize a group of subhumans. And I think as churches, we need to ask ourselves, what is our motivation for doing missions? Are we really going to share Jesus Christ with other people who have the same intrinsic value as we have? Or are we going somewhere merely to train and to humanize other people who are actually subhuman and give them a better culture, give them a better economy, give them, let them become more like us? And I think that's one of the things we have to ask about the way that as largely in American churches, we do our short-term missions. I love Jesus' model, which is he sent his disciples out two by two, and he sent them out with nothing. He literally allowed them to be led, not by the Holy Spirit, but by their stomachs. You know, they could walk into a town and like, who are we supposed to talk to? Well, this guy offered us a meal, so I'm voting for him. You know, <laughs> and they went in small groups. They, went, they had very visible need, 
And Jesus did say, he said, go into a village and wait till someone invites you in and then stay in that ho house and eat what they serve you and stay there until you leave to the next place. He didn't say go in and find the most, you know, hard-headed person and beat the gospel into them. It's go in and present your need and then talk to the people who welcome you in. We don't do short-term missions that way. We go completely masking any need and going with groups large enough that it's nearly impossible to be invited in by anyone. Um, and so I think there's a lot of wisdom in the way that Jesus sent his disciples out. And I, I, I try to challenge churches to look at ways uh, to make their short-term missions more uh, humane. A, a great resource that Jim had um, taken me to a while back was a book called When Helping Hurts, which I think gets at a lot of that and is a really excellent resource in um, understanding mission and, and helping to alleviate poverty is really great. Um, I understand that atrocities and huge mistakes have been made. What I don't understand is how I am complacent in those atrocities. Please explain. That's a very good question. Um, and I'm trying to think of the best way to answer that. Uh, for centuries, our country has built itself as a nation, a land of opportunity. We've welcomed people to come here. We broadcast that you can live out your American dream here. Um, the problem is the reason this is the land of opportunity and the only way the American dream is sustainable is if the land is free, if the land is empty and the labor is free, which is really how this nation was founded on the belief that it was an empty land and they imported a bunch of free labor. And so whether your relatives came over on the Mayflower or whether you're one of the 14 million current undocumented immigrants living in this nation, you're still living on stolen land. You're enjoying the fruits of free labor a history of free labor. And one of the challenges that I'm often faced with is uh, many places where I go, people want to have a reconciliation service. So they hear a presentation like we just gave and they want to do a foot washing and then they want to go home. And I say, well, that, that doesn't solve anything because you get to go home to your city in the your house in the suburbs and live off the fruits of the injustice and I have to go back home to the reservation and deal with communities that don't know how to raise children because they were raised in boarding schools that have deep self-hate because they were literally punished for speaking their own languages and practicing their own cultures and I have to go home and live with all the dregs of the injustices and something needs to change. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be something different. So one of the ways, if you can actually, can you go back to my website? Um, can you bring my website up? There's actually a video that I use when I get this question. 
are actually are used to, to help address the issues from this question. And it's, it's a way that I try to engage this dialogue, uh, kind of coming at it from a little different angle. So I used this video when we first started advertising or promoting the apology reading that we did. But if you could click on that YouTube video um, at the top, uh, just bring it up on YouTube. Yeah, click there on YouTube. Go ahead and pause that and then make it full screen. Yeah, that elevator music's not with the video. Go ahead and, uh, yeah, and go ahead and just start that. A question I frequently get asked is how does it feel to be Native American and still be a citizen of the United States of America? I often tell people that it feels like our Native community is an old grandmother who has a very large and a very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture. They're eating our food. They're having a party in our house. They've even come upstairs and unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later. And we're tired, we're old, we're weak, and we're sick. And so we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that is the most painful is that virtually nobody comes upstairs to find the grandmother in the bedroom. Nobody sits down next to us on the bed and simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. I use that video oftentimes to try to engage the dialogue about where do we start with reconciliation. Um, one of the challenges of trying to engage the issue of, of reconciliation in a nation that is hyper-individualistic is um, I'm not mad or angry with any one individual in this room or in this nation. Um, but because the culture here is so individualistic, when, when you hear about these injustices, you have 500 years of communal sin crushing down on a bunch of individuals. And there's a ve it's very difficult to know how to grapple with that. What do you do with that? And so um, part of, of the, the job of calling for this type of reconciliation is to communicate that this is not an individual sin. There's not one person that we're going to pull out. And you know I think that's what we do with Dan Snyder frequently is we, we put all of that injustice on him instead of letting it be shared communally as a nation. Um, and so the, the issue is not how does one person deal with this. The issue is 
how do we as a nation understand that corporately we have either benefited, participated in it, or at least been complicit by allowing it to happen. We've seen the, the, the history of it and we haven't done anything to stop it. And so how do we begin to respond corporately to that? And that's one of the biggest challenges that I have as I'm trying to, to bring this dialogue about is not to have a bunch of individual reconciliation processes going on, but to really communicate this is a corporate, a corporate injustice and it needs to be dealt with corporately. Um, so the way that you're complicit in it is you're part of the corporate. You live in this nation. Your family chose to come here. Um, and you have benefited from this history that I went through of injustice. And now we need to find a way to corporately address it. We need to find a way to come together and find a way to talk about it in a national dialogue and actually try to get something to change. Um, in Canada, they just had, there was a lawsuit that was brought by boarding school survivors against the government and it was settled in 2008. And part of the settlement for that lawsuit was um, the money that was given to the survivors. They took about 12 million of that and they uh, began, they set up what's called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, where there was a commission that went throughout the, the, country, the nation of Canada and it created large conference-like platforms, excuse me, that allowed native peoples to come forward and publicly share their story, to tell the truth of what happened to them. There were representatives from the government, from the churches, citizens from those provinces where they had the conferences, and they heard these truths, and then they responded with, with gestures or with acts of reconciliation. And um, there's one of the things that I, I've talked about frequently is I personally don't believe our nation is ready for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, because we can't even admit we've done something wrong on a national level. But I have been advocating for what I call the Truth Commission, which is let's create these platforms and allow the survivors of these injustices or the families of these injustices to come forward and share the truth and leave an open chair, leave an open chair for the church, leave an open chair for the community, leave an open chair for the government to come and join this dialogue um, of their free will, not because they're settling a lawsuit and required to be there, but out of a desire to be there for the sake of seeking reconciliation. So those are a lot of different ways to address the, a the action or the question about complicity, but um, those are several ways that I try to think about those issues. Um, it's 8 o'clock right now, and um, if you have kids, feel free to go pick the kids up, and you can bring them back in here. But I think we should take a few more minutes uh, to answer some questions. We have more questions back there. Is that a thumbs up, a middle finger, or uh, we have one? <laughs> All right, throw another one up there. Last question. How can we best engage Native Americans to further discuss the topics co dis covered tonight? How do Christians and the church love our Native Americans? So that video that we just showed you is really my best effort on how to engage this dialogue. Um, had Senator Brownback come to me seven years ago 
and said, Mark, I want to give an apology through Congress to Native Americans, I would have said to him, don't do it. Our nation is nowhere near ready to apologize. I had been using that metaphor, the grandmother in the house already for a few years to engage people in this conversation. Um, and I'm not asking for uh, an admission of guilt. I'm not asking for, um, for even an apology yet. All I'm asking is for our nation to recognize that in some very real and practical ways, they are guests in someone else's house. And can they begin to show the respect of being in that role? One of the primary challenges that I see within our nation is that we really have a reversal of roles where we have a nation of immigrants that act like they own the place and we have six million indigenous peoples who act like unwanted guests in someone else's house. And I really think there has to be in some practical ways a reversal of those roles where the indigenous peoples need to begin acting like the host people of this land um, and offering advice, offering leadership, offering input into even some of these national dialogues like immigration reform or like creation care, global warming, um, even foreign policy, talking about some of these issues. Um, and I think there are many ways where I would love it if our nation would just I would have loved it if a year and a half ago the Gang of Eight would have come to the microphone and said, we don't know how to justly, we don't have the integrity to comprehensively and justly reform immigration law. We would like to invite our Native American brothers and sisters to the table to help us in this process. Um, you know, I, I would love it if, if our churches and our communities and our individuals would begin to ask themselves, what does it look like to express gratitude to the indigenous hosts of our land? How can we begin to respect the native peoples whose land we're living on today? Everyone's house is sitting on some tribe's traditional lands. What does it look like to show respect to those tribes um, for having a house that's been built on their lands? Um, the primary way I think is through the building of relationships and just beginning to learn the history to understand the history of the people. Um, I, I also think things like learning the language is also a good way. There's actually a Navajo Rosetta Stone, if anyone wants to get that. We even trans we had Star Wars dubbed into Navajo by our tribe a few years ago, about a year and a half ago. So if you go to Walmart and Gallup, you can buy Navajo Star Wars. Um, uh, it's actually pretty cool. but. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of ways that we can just begin to act like in some practical ways we're guests in someone else's house. What does it mean? How do we show respect in that, in that way? Um, and then begin to, to act those things out. And the, the, the thing you really have to understand about this is you need to recognize that you live in a nation that was intentionally designed to convince you that this land was empty. So this nation was designed intentionally, systemically, to convince you that this land was empty. And so there's not going to be any natural 
ways to kind of engage native peoples. The only way it's going to happen is if you intentionally go out of your way and seek those relationships, and it's going to be incredibly awkward. It's going to feel weird. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be weird, and you're going to end up getting offended and being offended. But if you do those things, if you go out of your way and go sit at a powwow and sit in the native section, you know, or, uh, you know, do things to engage the, the, the native communities around you and really go there seeking relationship, you're going to have some bumbling conversations, but it's going to lead to a real relationship. I often tell short-term mission teams, you know, if you want to really do a, something that impacts our community, get a small team, three to five people, have them make a three to five year commitment, meaning they're going to come back every year for three to five years. And the first year you come, just bring bags of dirty laundry and hang out in the laundromat. And just sit there. And people are going to ask, why are you here? What are you doing? And you're going to have some really awkward and weird conversations. But they're going to be real. If you come with your team of 12 people, your little minivan of all your, all your supplies, there's a script that we're going to follow. And you're going to come saving the same 10 kids that the last team saved the week before. And we're all going to come together to the church and make you Navajo tacos. And, you know, we're, we're, there's a script that we're going to follow and you're going to follow. And, but nothing's really going to be, nothing real is going to happen in that. If you come outside of that script, then you actually, it's going to be bumbling, it's going to be awkward, it's going to feel weird, but you're going to have some real interactions. And those real interactions are going to lead to real relationships, which are going to have the potential to lead to some real reconciliation. And that's the goal, is to get out of the historical script and get into this ad-living section where we can actually build a real relationship. What do you think, Mark? So, um, next month will be our final first Wednesday of the year, and then we'll pick up again in February. Next month is going to be just as, as heavy, just as important of a topic. Uh, Jeremy Courtney from the Preemptive Love Coalition is going to come and discuss some weighty global issues. Mark Charles is actually going to be back to give us some of that perspective on some of these global issues that we're wrestling with as well. Um, as you leave today, I just kind of want to leave you with one thing. There's a book in the back called Visions of Vocation. And in that book, Stephen Garber says that one of the hardest things in the world to do is to take the wounds of the world into your heart without becoming a cynic or a stoic. And so tonight, don't go home and be a cynic. Go home and be with Jesus in prayer and wrestle with these things. Don't go to Hulu or Netflix and try to medicate yourself. Stay uncomfortable in the name of Jesus. And it's in, I'm going to pray in his name, and then we'll end here. Just really quickly, I, the, the thing I brought in about uh, the narrative in Joshua and the identity of the United States of America, there's a book that my friend wrote, Daniel Hawk. He's a professor at Ashland Seminary in Ohio. It's called Joshua in 3D. And it takes the narrative in Joshua and overlays it with some of the U.S. identity issues. Um, 
uh, Dan Hawk and I are going to be moderating a Facebook group in a few weeks um, online. And we're going to basically take people through this book chapter by chapter. We'll put some discussion questions out there. We'll do some Google Hangouts. And we're going to just try to engage the issue with the doctrine of discovery and American identity through a kind of a corporate reading of this book. So if you're interested in joining us with that, you can find me on Facebook at Wireless Hogan. Uh, just go to my website, wirelesshogan.com, and you'll find all my contact information. And we're going to be starting that group in a few weeks and just be going through this book chapter by chapter uh, to discuss some of these issues. Father, thank you for um, being able to wrestle with these hard things tonight. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have entered into the painful mess. And we just pray that you would teach us how to cling to you, to love truth, to love justice, to love mercy. Um, and Father, we just do pray that you would help us to know how, as a congregation, we can wrestle deeply with these things. Um, God, would you prevent us from easy solutions, quick solutions, those sorts of things, but to know that um, a history of pain um, needs a, a history of people who are pursuing reconciliation, and it doesn't happen quickly. We thank you for your presence here among us tonight, that you are the Lord of all creation, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everyone. <laughs>